0: As you can see on the screen, you can start. You can turn your Bibles to um, the book of Revelation. Are some of our college students coming back? Or is this yeah, I thought so. I saw some that I hadn't seen in a while and want to welcome you back and uh, let you know we miss you. We miss you in the summer. You know, it gets kind of empty over in that area. So uh, keep it full. We appreciate you very much. You add something to this congregation in a big way. And as I look over there, I, I see uh, Ralph and Tanisha. Yeah. Just visiting, I assume? Uh, okay. Well, if, uh, if you ever feel unloved where you are, you can always come back because you'll be loved here. So we miss you when you're gone. We're, we're glad to see you when you visit us. Uh, I want to tell you a quick story about last week, some things last week. Uh, <clears throat> right after the, we finished, the formal stuff we finished, uh, Tim, Tim McKee came up to me, and he said, uh, Alan, when you said la da did you mean la do Now, he didn't really say oh, This is symbolic. This is Revelation, so I'm using symbolic language, so we'll make it short. And I said, "No, I didn't mean Lottie Doe. I meant Lottie D." And he goes, "Oh, no, Lottie D, Lottie Da, Lottie Doe. Okay, whatever." And I said, "I meant Lottie Doe." And he goes, "Oh, well, that makes sense because Lottie D did not make sense. Oh, thank you." We went on our way. That was a really good thing. He didn't understand something. He came to me. He said, "Hey, what, what about this?" About two or three hours later, someone came up to me and said, "Alan, do you believe in Lottie Da?" It's a different la-di-da, by the way, not the same la-di-da, different la-di-da. I go, no, I don't believe in la-di-da. He said, well, I was listening, and a couple of people thought you said in your sermon la-di-da. And I said, no, I believe in la di <laughs> And he said, I thought so. Why don't you, why don't, I said, why don't you tell them to come and talk to me? And he said, I did. And I'm saying all that to say this. Communication is difficult, all right? If you don't believe it, get married. <laughs> oh, I heard an amen there, a lot of them. <laughs> and it's difficult when you get up and you're trying to talk about God's word and condense things down, and things can be misheard. I take a great responsibility in trying to say things clearly, but also the responsibility in if you hear me in a way that's not clear. Uh, I, I feel responsible for that, too. So I want to encourage you. If you have, if you heard something that bothers you, that's like, ah, I'm, I'm not sure what he said there, just come on up and talk to me. I, I don't think I bite. <laughs> I, I don't think I react uh, strongly in, in a negative way. If I do, just point it out to me. Well, you're being a jerk. You know, I'm trying to tell you something here. That's okay. And all I'm saying is we're a family. We're trying to look at God's word together. If you mishear something or if I missay something, just come on up. Let's talk about it. And I realize that, you know, you you might not it might not bother you that much, so you just go on your way or or you can't get to me, so you know, send me a text or something. Anyway, we're looking at we've been going through the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, looking at the different churches. And I've become more excited about these different churches because there are seven churches in the book of Revelation this letter was written to. And in each of these churches, I have seen myself. I hope you have seen yourself. And I hope you see yourself in a personal way first. I see myself in a very personal way, very convicted as I look through each of these churches and I see where I lack and my... Strengths and my weaknesses. And then we need to look at ourselves as a church. How do we see ourselves as a, as a church? Perhaps a person who has lost their first love or is spiritually dead, as we've looked at. You might look at that from last week's lesson and say, I'm convicted that I'm spiritually dead. I need to make some changes in my life. Or on the positive side, you may recognize your perseverance, your faithfulness. Sometimes in our humility, we don't recognize what we're doing right. But you may look at your faithfulness in a culture that's tempting us to to be unfaithful. And as we look at ourselves, I I want you to think that if something convicts you, What he is saying is repent and make some changes in your life. You know what we normally want to do? If I'm convicted from the scripture that I'm spiritually dead and therefore I need to get in God's word and start feeding on God's word, what we normally do is tell everyone else they need to be doing that. It's just this natural thing is I'm convicted so I'm going to tell all of you. Instead, we need to look at ourselves and look at the things I need to change first before I go and try and get you to to change. Now, there's nothing wrong with encouraging and helping other people, but make those changes first in your own life. But I want to remind us once again because we're so quick to forget this that the message is primarily about Jesus and it's from Jesus. It was from Jesus. It's about Jesus. This message is a Christ-centric message. And each letter that is addressed to each of these seven churches begin with saying, this is who Jesus is. You don't realize that whole first chapter is all about Jesus. It focuses on Jesus. It said this letter is from Jesus. It's, it's about Jesus. And it's our response to Jesus. And so as we look at these letters, as these seven little letters that went to these churches, we need to remember that this is from Jesus. And the reason is that our response to these letters must be out of our worship to him. You know, when I'm convicted and I say, well, I need to change this, I need to do that. We can do that for so many different reasons. Our ego gets in the way. I change because I want to look good in front of you. I might make some changes, but I've done it for the wrong reason. And so I need to look at who Jesus is, understand the total otherliness of him, I don't think that's a word but we'll make it up an otherliness of him and then all our doings are going to be from the right motive. We're going to look at that a little bit more in a minute. We can repent, we can change because we're embarrassed. We got caught. So we change because I got caught. Or you want to look good or get pats on the backs from others. And those changes are usually surface and superficial, but true life-changing Changes occur when we look to God, look to Jesus, and out of response for who he is and what he's done, we make those changes in our lives. And so we're going to be reminded about that when we come to this little letter to the church in Philadelphia. Um, Let's read this passage, and then I want to take you there. I have one video today of uh, my trip back in April uh, to the site of the church of philadelphia verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3 to the angel of the church in philadelphia write these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of david what he opens no one can shut what he shuts no one can open i know your deeds see i have placed before you an open door that no one can shut I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take away your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven and from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let's go into Philadelphia. Quick, uh, for those of you who might be visiting or first time here, I made a trip uh, to uh, Turkey last uh, April. April, yeah, April. Uh, I drove to these places by myself. I got lost a few times, as is evident in this video also.
1: Okay, I don't know exactly how I got here, but by the grace of God. There's no street signs. I have n- no map to get back here. I uh, looked at it last night on the internet and knew the general direction. I've just kind of driven down different s- side streets and around and about, and uh, here it is. I found Philadelphia. So I'm going to walk in and see what it's about. All that's left of the church of the city of Philadelphia. It's less than a city block. I guess it's a small city block here with three great pillars uh, from the St. John's Church. I'm guessing it was built in the 3rd or 4th century. I don't know. I'm going to have to look it up. But that's all that's really left. There's some archaeological pits that they're not doing any work on and probably won't for many years. But this is all that's left of the uh, Church of Philadelphia. You can walk around it in three minutes. be easy, uh, easy enough to do. I guess 3rd or 4th century, how about 7th century? There's a sign over here that says this, uh, this church building was uh, A.D. 600. So that's the beginning of the 7th century, the end of the 6th of the century. This is all that there is.
0: You might have noticed the mosque across the street, but that gives you an idea. That's all that's left. Now, of course, those buildings around there, if they were to tear them down and excavate, there'd be things under there. But that's all you'll, if you go today, literally in three minutes, you could walk the paths and, and see almost everything there. Philadelphia was the least impressive of all the seven cities that we've read, including today, obviously. It's the smallest uh, site. Um, all that's left there are some 7th century ruins of an uh, old basilica. Uh, we're familiar with the name, Philadelphia. <clears throat> it's a U.S. city here uh, called Philadelphia. And you know it as the city of brotherly love. It was named after this city. We had uh, two kings, <clears throat> Eumenes the second and Attalus the second. They were brothers. Uh, Eumenes was king of Pergamum, <clears throat> and he wanted to build a city uh, down in this area, where Philadelphia is. He wasn't able to. His brother came behind him, and he built the city. And these two were close to each other. They, they loved each other. <clears throat> and it was obvious to people around them that they had a close uh, friendship. Uh, they honored one another. They cared for one another. And in an era where brothers would kill each other for a king, to be a king, uh, this was unusual. And so he was given, Attalus was given the name Attalus Attalus, however you pronounce his name, was given the title, uh, the nickname Philadelphius the one who loves his brother. Uh, he built this city in honor of his brother, but then they named it after him or after that relationship, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Phila means brother, love of a re, close rela, uh, relation. Delphia, Aldephos, the brothers. And so Philadelphia is why we have that name. It was built for a particular purpose. And it was to be a missionary city. This is an interesting thing. This was a missionary city, not for the purpose of spreading the good news of Jesus, but of spreading the good news of the Greek culture and language. That was the purpose of it. They wanted, this was right on the frontier, and they wanted to go out and uh, spread the Greek culture because they thought that was the best culture of all, Uh, spread, uh, spread, spread the language Uh, So people would speak uh, uh, Greek. And they were so successful that the province to the west, that's Sardis and Smyrna and all that area, they became totally Greek-speaking. Their minds were totally Greek after just a few years. As you go to the east of Phrygia, they were a little more barbaric, and even though they did learn the language, uh, they resisted a lot of this uh, missionary work. Uh, It was a, a city that was affected in a great way by the earthquake that I told you about a couple of weeks ago. In 17 AD, we had this earthquake. It's one of the worst earthquakes that, that the world has ever known. You can see there the seven, the seven cities where Philadelphia is. It's on the kind of the far uh, eastern uh, area. Uh, you go further east, that goes into the area of Fergia, uh, And so this earthquake was devastating to 12 cities. Um, Sardis suffered greatly and I told you how the the, um, the where they had the citadel uh, 25 acres or so 20 of those acres just fell down on top of another city below them but in uh, Philadelphia they were right close to the fault line and they experienced tremors uh, from this earthquake for 20 years it just went on and on and on. So much so that many people in the city were just unsettled. They were unsure. They didn't know when a, a block was going to fall on their head. And so they moved out of the city, many of them, and they would stay in tents. Uh, they would just camp out for years. And then they would say, well, you know, it hasn't been a tremor for a while. And they'd move back into the city and get get there for a little while. And then there's another earthquake, small earthquake, and they didn't know if it was going to be a big one again. So they'd move out. So you just had this Unsettled feeling. Uh, they didn't feel safe uh, where they were. Uh, never knew when buildings would, would fall down on them. And after a while, they, uh, they, when the earthquake subsided, they came back in, and there's a modern-day uh, city there today. In many ways, this was just an ordinary. It was probably the most ordinary city of all the cities of the seven cities. They have some beautiful, and I was impressed on this as I drove, just beautiful um, vineyards, uh, beautiful farmland. There's, you just drive, I saw vineyards, I saw uh, olive uh, trees, uh, just things I didn't know what were growing, but just miles and miles of this beautiful uh, farmland. Uh, It's flat. You know, you're getting getting out of the mountains here. It's it's fairly flat, so it's not beautiful in in that way. But the rich volcanic soil, the weather—it's a perfect place to grow grapes. And so the god Dionysus was honored. He's the god of wine, and he's there up in Pergamum. He's he's all over the place. Anywhere there's wine, there's this particular god. But he was the one that was most honored there. Uh, There was no harbor, obviously. Uh, no military post, like there was in Sardis. No government center. There was no, wasn't a government uh, center at all. No particular natural beauty, not very big, not influential in a great way as far as the government was concerned. But their greatest asset was a trade route that went through from Philadelphia, Sardis, Smyrna, and also went out into the east. It was a major trade route. And, of course, their wines, people would uh, purchase their wines. But that was really all that was uh, impressive about the city of Philadelphia. Let's look at Jesus, though, because this, city, this is addressed to Philadelphia. But the first thing that we find out is that Jesus is described in three ways. Notice in verse um, 7, he says, These are the words of him who, are, who is holy. We just sang a song, and I thank Ed for picking that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And that whole song, if you went through it, speaks of what holiness is. And if there's one word that describes God, it would be the word holy. Anytime a person is described as holy, most of the times as you go to the Bible it describes God, but anytime a person is described as holy, or an angel is described as holy, is always due to their connection with God. They're not holy in and of themselves. No one is holy apart from God. And so God is holy within himself. We, we only have whatever degree of holiness we have is because it's connected to God. And this word holy, we usually think of it as being sinless and pure and having nothing to do with bad things. But that's not the basic meaning. The basic meaning is to be set apart by God for a purpose or set apart for God's purpose. It means unique. That's, that, would, that would not be a bad way of translating the word holy. Unique, except it just doesn't, it's just not unique enough. It's not honoring enough. It means different. God is Different. God is unlike anything else. He has this otherness. He's special. My grandson, Tui, called me on the phone about a week ago. He said, Big Dog, he's, how's Tui, five? Big Dog, what does God look like, and when was he born? That, was a not, that wasn't a phone conversation. I had to take him out to Chick-fil-A, of course, and and explain as what I could about the different, how, how do you explain something that's so different that you can't explain it? And that's the problem. Even at five years old, people are going, what's God like? How was he born? How did he get here? And the word holy sums that all up and says, God is so unique. He is so different. He is so unlike anything else. You can't explain him. It's hard to explain him. We can take some things and try to you know, bring out his character. But bottom line, he, he, he cannot be explained. He is so different. What makes him special, what makes him unique, what makes him holy is his perfection. Something we also have a hard time understanding. He's perfect in his character. Everything about God is the way it should be. And we look at God sometimes in the Bible and say, I I just don't understand that. I just don't. Well, good. You shouldn't understand it. If you were to read the Bible and you understood everything perfectly, you would be God. You know, think about it. If you read about that and said, you know, God doesn't confuse me. God doesn't marvel me. I don't have to wonder about anything about God because it's so simple. The very fact that you struggle with this God shows that he's different. Shows that he's unique, shows that he's special, shows that he's pure in his motives. He never has mixed motives. He never has bad motives. His actions are always the way it should be. Isn't that amazing? We look at things and say, well, you shouldn't do that or you should do that. And you can look at God and say, even though I don't understand why he did that, that's what he should have done. He always does the right thing. He's sinless. He never does anything wrong. Isn't that amazing? Never does anything wrong. And I hear so many, there's a, a thousand, oh, I don't know if a thousand, but there, there, there might be a thousand echoes. You know, we're listening to the echoes and going back into scriptures and culture to find out what is he saying here. The echo I'm going to bring out is from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. The first part, it says, for this is what the high and lofty one says. And then it describes him. He who lives forever, whose name do you remember what the word name means? It means your character. All right, that's what the word name means in the Bible is your character, whose character is holy. And then he goes on to say some things that we'll pick up in a minute. So Jesus here says, I am holy. He is describing himself as God. He is saying, again, I'm God. I am holy. He also says I am true literally these words are the holy the true the holy the true and the point of that it's awkward in English and so you hardly ever see it but the point of that is this is his character this is he is the holy sometimes you do holy things but you're not the holy sometimes you do true things but you are not the true if you go back into philosophy, I can't remember if it's Plato or Socrates, and probably both. They were trying to figure out life. And so they looked around, and they said, you know, there are... Ch- I think they actually used the, the term, ch- the chair. They said, there are chairs. There's all sorts of chairs. There's, you know, when I say chair, there's this kind of chair, there's that kind of chair, there's another you know, Jim sitting in a comfortable chair. Is his wife sitting in a comfortable chair? No, he's not. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I just noticed that. <laughs> chairs, No. That's okay. Jim cut the grass yesterday. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> chairs. You know, but he says these are little C chairs that describe a greater, perfect, the perfect capital C chair. And he used that as a concrete Creek example to say the same is true of beauty. You can say that's beautiful and that's beautiful and that's beautiful, but it's based on there's a greater beauty. How do we, where's the standard is what they're saying. And this is what God is saying here. He's saying there are a lot of truths and a lot of true things that go on. And you can say this is truthful and that's truthful. But there is only one, the truth, that is the standard of all truth. And that's what he is. He's not one who came with some truth and to taught us some things about the truth. But he's the standard of truth. He is called the true one. The word means authentic. It can mean real. It can mean ideal. It can mean genuine. In a world in which we live where our standards are fluid, you know, they just they change. And they've been changing for centuries, by the way. You read history just it's a repeat of what we're going through today. That standards just change and change and change. We live in a society, we can't agree on what's right. Have you ever noticed that on Facebook or whatever? It doesn't matter how dumb you put something or how true something is, you have 15 different opinions on that. I've just gotten to the point, I don't even look at those It's so, you know, know, I I get angry at people for being so dumb. (laughs) They don't agree with me. (laughs) So I just don't look at those things anymore. But it says in this the city where this uh, society where we can't agree on right and wrong, Jesus steps forward and makes that claim. He says, "I am the true one. I am the standard of truth." The opposite would be imaginary or con- counterfeit or pretend. He says, "He is the true one." And then he has this strange one here that you know we, we'd all go, "Oh yeah, we, we believe that." Who holds the key of David? And it talks about opening. And closing doors, and I thought, there has to be an echo there. And I found it over in Isaiah. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Look, this is almost an exact quote. It may be an exact quote. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And so I go, hmm, what's that talking about? And what that's talking about is a during the time of Hezekiah, there was a man named Eliakim. You can read a little bit about him in I think 1 Kings 18 and 19 when the Assyrians are coming to attack Jerusalem. He's involved in, in, in all that. But he was the palace administrator. Uh, he had the job of holding the key, literal key that unlocked the door, and locked the door that that ushered you in to see the king. You see, not anyone can just walk in and see the king, right? I was walking through here. I put my little video up there, and I heard Elliot. Elliot talking about uh, Esther and being uh, coming in to the king. And uh, if Esther had come in to see the king uh, on her own, which she did, she could be killed. You just didn't walk up to a king and go, hey, what's going on? All right, you had to have permission. You had Eliakim who said, all right, you may go in now. Just like today, if you ran up to the president, what would happen? You know, you might get tackled. You might, you know, something bad would happen. Someone would get in front of you and say, no, you you don't have access to, you know, the the president. You have to make an appointment. You have to go through the proper channels. That's what this was. And so Eliakim was the one who opened and door, uh, shut the door, he was the, the one who let people see the king. And so my thoughts on these were first. Entrance to the king is in Jesus' authority. Entrance into coming in the presence of God can only come through Jesus. And there's so many uh, passages we can go to that we won't. Uh, he, that key is a symbol of authority. He has authority. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. He holds authority. The key, and second, the house of David speaks about that messianic lineage, that he is of the, he is the Messiah. He is the one that, that the Old Testament talks about. That it brings us to see uh, to see that he is the Messiah, and so this is a claim that he is the entrance into the ushering you into the uh, presence of God. That he is the Messiah. He ushers you into salvation. John chapter ten verse nine says, "I am the gate." And that word is the very same word here that he uses in a moment about door. It can be translated door. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the one with all authority. I'm the one that ushers you into the king. I am the one whose salvation, who who, uh, offers you salvation. I am the Messiah. And whoever comes through me will be saved. And then he says, I know. I know. And there's two things that he says I know. I know your deeds, and I know your little strength. And I was thinking about this, your deeds. Five of the seven churches, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Jesus is interested in what you're doing. Ever thought about that? We looked at it earlier that he is in, he's walking among the churches. He is interested. He is vitally connected with you. Have you ever felt like, God just doesn't listen to me? I feel like my prayers only go up to the ceiling and no further. Does God really hear me? And what Revelation is saying is, yes, he knows, he experiences, he hears you. He's there when you don't feel like he's there. And he's interested in what you're doing. He says, I know your works. I know your activities. I know your actions. I know what kind of job you're doing. I'm aware of these things, Jesus is saying. And we're not to be busy to earn anything from God. Our busyness isn't because we're trying to earn God's attention. We already have God's attention. We're not trying to prove that we are worthy of him in any way. We're not to be busy just for busyness sake. You know, some people's personality, they just have to be busy just for busyness sake. That's not our busyness with the Father, with God. But we are motivated out of his great love for us. When we understand his great love for us, what he's done for us, then we get busy. We start doing things. And God says, I'm aware of these. I see this. We have this Christ-centric motivation. We are doing these things for God. And we're busy for him. And God says, I see what you're doing. I see all you. Some of you took care of little children this morning. God saw it. Some of you are dealing with issues in your life and you're struggling with things. And God knows what you're doing. He's there. And then he says, I know your little strength. These Philadelphians didn't have much power. Maybe in number, maybe they were a small church. We don't know how they had little strength, but I would suspect they were small in number. Influence, they probably didn't have anyone in that church of great influence in the community. Probably had a little money. Charisma, they weren't very charismatic church. They were just a little church, little small town church. And normally those of us who are aware of our weakness, we just kind of back off and we turn inward. And what do we say? I can't. I can't. That's our motto. And God's motto is this. Weak ones turn to me. I'll work through your weakness. And the Bible is filled with examples. Noah, Moses, Gideon, Timothy, Paul, and you can go on and on and on how God works through weak people. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, but we have this treasure, this treasure of God in jars of clay. That's talking about yourself. All I am is a jar of clay. You ever drop a jar of clay, a jar made of clay? It breaks, it shatters, and it's not worth that much. You can get another one. You know, one of those pots, you know, that you put plants in, little clay pots. And you drop that, you go, oh, phooey, and you go get another clay pot. Because it's not that expensive. And he says, that's, that's what you are. You have this treasure in yourself, and it shows this all-surpassing power that's from God, and it's not from us. That's the point. And so, yes, we are of little strength. And so what do little strength people do? What should we do? And the answer is this. Look. Look. We have a funny story in our family. I didn't ask permission to tell this, but it's so funny I got it to you. It's about my mom and dad. They're right up here. Yeah, mom's giving me the look. <laughs> She'll give me the Look. We're driving down the road. There, and I wasn't. My dad, my mom, and some of the grandkids in the back seat, they're driving down the road. It's in the middle of a big city, four or five lane, you know, it's going 65 miles an hour or whatever. And they came on an airport that had some neat planes out there. And my mother goes, look out there! And my dad's like, where? <laughs> Don't scream, look out there when I'm driving. You know, so he thought, look out, there comes a car, you know, something. <laughs> But that's what you do when you say, look, you look, right? You, you can't help yourself. If, if you weren't prepared and I said, everybody, look, look. Uh, and some of you go, "Oh, what, what? are. You know, you, some of you turn around, what? You know? Because that word look means look. And you do. You point at something, you look at it. And that's what he says here. He says, look, because these people have been looking in the wrong direction. Strong people look at their strength and their abilities, and their motto is, I can, I'm strong, I'm able to do this. And weak people look at their inabilities and their lack of strength, and their motto is, I can't. And they're both looking in the wrong direction. They're both looking right here at themselves and say, I can do it. I can do it. I can build up this church. I can counsel people. If you come to me, I can do it. I can change your life. I can't, or I can't, I can't. No, I can't do anything. Don't ask me. I can't. And we're looking at the wrong place. And so Christians are called, look out of yourself. Look beyond yourself. Look out. And he says, look, verse 8, I have placed before you an open door. In the NIV, it says, see, I have placed before you an open door. Saying, you know, it's, it's kind of smooth in our English there, to say, see, I've placed before you. I don't think it's saying it that way. I think he's, it's an emphasis here. He's saying, look, I've placed before you an open door. And an open door, it, it refers to opportunities. It's, it's such a common way of us, even today, saying, I had an open door. And I, I can't, you know, God opened the door for me. Or at, at my job, I had an open door to, you know, to advancement or whatever. And it can mean any kind of opportunity but most of the time in the New Testament it's talking about an evangelistic opportunity when the door was open for Paul to go such and such place and that would make sense in this city where they were a missionary city they were there, they were planted there by the king to be missionaries in the Greek language and the Greek culture and they're trying to spread that and so Jesus is saying pulling off that cultural echo and saying look, I'm opening up a door for you here And he's saying, look, don't regard your little strength. Don't regard yourselves. Don't look at yourselves and say, Well, I just can't do this, or you'll miss that open door. Because here's the point: Jesus is the one that opens the door. Jesus is the one that closes the door. And when Jesus says, I have opened a door, we are being ushered into the presence of an opportunity. And we have an opportunity here. And he's saying, Go through this door. And he's saying, no one's going to shut this door on you. I'm the one who shuts. I'm the one who opens the door. No one else can do this. And so Jesus says, look up here. Look at me. Look to me. Not look to your abilities. Not look to your plans. Don't look at your programs. Don't look at what you can't do. Look to me. I'm opening up a door for you. And then in verse 9, twice he says, look. But if you have the NIV, you will not see it. They've left it out. Uh, I I think the reason, I've never talked to a translator in the NIV, but I think the reason they do this is it doesn't, you know, trying to get something that reads smoothly, and sometimes it doesn't read that smoothly. In your King James, you'll see behold, all right, Uh, or some translations will say see or look, but it's there here, and I think this is what happened, it's happening. Jesus is trying to catch their attention, he doesn't want them to miss this, and so again, he's saying, look, look, pay attention, I don't want you to miss this opportunity. And I think the next verse, verse 9, he's talking about the door that he's opening up to them. Verse 9, let's just go ahead and read it. I I make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet to acknowledge that I have loved you. I think this is the open door. And it's a strange verse. It's difficult to... If you you look at it word by word, it's hard to uh, to, uh, translate. So I'm going to break it down for you. The NIV here says, I will make those. All right, you see that right at the beginning? Verse 9, I will make those. Okay, let me tell you what it literally says. Literally, it says, Look, I give. That's the literal words, but it's very awkward in English. Look, I give. And this I give means I keep on giving. I'm continually giving something to you. And so I asked the question when I discovered that. I said, well, to whom is he giving this? Who, who is he giving? So- He's giving something to someone. Who, who, what is, who is he giving? And the answer is this. I'm giving to the worst of the worst. Is that how you say it? The worst of the worst? Okay. It's one of those words. That should it be wor- worst of the worst or worst of the worst? Of the worst, of the worst, of the worst. Or worst of the worst. Whatever. <laughs> Switch around. Whatever makes sense to you. You know what I mean. The baddest of the bad. The awfulest of the awful. And he says, look, there is a congregation of people who are adversaries. They're opposing you. They're fighting you. They're called the synagogue of Satan. Satan means adversary. They're fighting against you. They're claiming they're doing this in God's name. They claim to be children of God, people of God. But he says they're lying. So they're liars. And we would look at a a group of people who are who are uh, together. They're united in their opposition of us. They're fighting us. They're claiming to do it in God's name, and they're lying. And how how would we look at that? We'd say that's a closed door, right? Those are closed door people. They're hard-hearted people. They're closed doors. They can't change. Their hearts are hard. They're liars. They won't listen. And then the God of the impossible says again, Look, I will give. He says, structurally in the sentence, it's just a hodgepodge. I don't think that's a grammatical term, but it is. It's a hodgepodge. There's a, if you look in, the, in, in your NIV, but they are liars, dash. You see that little dash there? some have a semicolon or whatever and they're trying this, there's this thought that's going through there and it's hard to put it all together but what he you saying here He's right at that point where he says I will make them he's saying look I will make them I'm making a point Jesus is saying I'm making a point here and you're not paying attention because you're weak people so look I'm gonna, I give to these people and look I'm going to make them do something Because when we're sitting there in our weakness and we're just saying, it's closed doors. It's a closed door. It's not going to happen. And God is slapping us in the face and saying, look, I'm opening up a door for you. Look, look what I've been doing here. He's been at work in the lives of these people. He He has been giving something to them. He's going to make them do something here. What's he going to make them do? I would sum it up this way. He's going to make them respond to his love as it is manifested in the Christian group there. He says, I am going, and they will know that I have loved you. How will they know? He's not talking about a miracle here. He's talking about when they see how I have loved you, how I have treated you, when they see your salvation and how you're loving one another, that's what's going to make them turn to me. And I've been giving this hard-hearted people over and over my love and my direction, and I've I've been in their lives, and they don't even know it. But things are going to change here because I'm opening up this door. My paraphrase goes like this. Look, I will give and keep on giving to that group of the adversary. Those who claim to be my people are but are really a synagogue of liars. Look! See what I'm about to do. I will cause them to worship in your presence at your very feet. Indeed, they shall realize that I have loved you. He's not talking about conquering them and shaming them. He's saying there's a group of people that are so opposed to me, but I'm going to give them my love so much that they're going to change. They're going to look at you, and they're going to come into your very presence, and they're going to fall down, and they're going to worship together with you. That's what I think he's saying. We sang that song, And Can It Be? For, oh my God, it found me out. He's talking about God's love there. And that's what I think he said I'm changing the hearts of these hard hearted people, and my love's going to find them out. And they're going to come into your presence and worship. These people were in an impossible situation. They were small, they were weak, they were being opposed by the Jewish community. And the second part of that passage I read to you from Isaiah chapter 57, that talked about the Holy God. This is what the Holy God says. This is what he says. Whose name is Holy? I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly. This great God, other, other, otherliness, special, apart, who lives in a high and holy, lofty place. Where is he? Right there with you. He's not out there saying, when you change, then things are going to get better. He's coming down with those who are contrite, repentant, lowly in spirit, the weak those of little strength and he's there with them go all the way west to Smyrna there was a Jewish community that was so aggressively opposed to Christians that some were being thrown into jail some were going to die their suffering was acute you go to the east to Sardis they had a big group of Jews, Jewish uh, synagogue there and they didn't care. Live and let live. That was their attitude. Go 40 more miles to Philadelphia and now we have another group who are opposed to the Christians. And God says to this group, the group in Smyrna, yeah, they're going to attack, they're going to put people in prison, but this group here, I've been giving my love to them. And I keep on giving it to them. And I'm going to keep on giving it to them. And as a result, they're going to change. They're going to be part of your community. And you read Irenaeus's works 20 years later. And it refers to the Jews who became Christians. It happened in First Corinthians 14. You go over to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 25, 4 and 25. Our problem when we come to... This passage is we try and figure out all the things we can't figure out. Instead of just stepping back and saying, What's the message? What's the message here? Instead of saying, Well, oh, what's the speaking in tongues and what's the prophesying and what's all these different things? But he says here, and that reminded me of this passage if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, don't get in your mind that everyone in the room is telling the future. What he is saying here, he says, they're coming into your assembly and the word of God is being preached. People are sharing what God has been doing in their lives. That's what prophecy is. It's not telling the future mainly. It's mainly proclaiming God's word. And he says, and that word, someone comes in who does not understand, means someone who comes in with an inquiring mind. He has an open heart. He wants to figure out things. So he comes into your assembly, and he's there trying to figure things out. He's wondering what's going on. And he says, everyone, people are talking about God. They're sharing with what God has done. Daniel had us do, to do that. Share with, you know, someone. And it was an odd thing for us to do in the Lord's Supper. But it was good. Because we're sitting there going, yeah, okay, I'm thinking about Jesus. And yeah, Jesus has been been involved in my life this week. And so we're sharing that with others. And then when someone opens up the word and and he says, look, this is what God is saying. That's what's happening here. He says, when that person who has an open heart comes, he will be convinced by all that he's a sinner. He'll be judged by all. Welcome to the family. Yeah, we're sinners too. That's what it's saying. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. He'll just confess. Confess. I'm a sinner. This is what I've been doing. He'll fall down. He'll worship God. He'll, come, he'll proclaim, man, God is really among you. My question is this Who are the impossible ones in your lives? Where's the closed door in your life? What, what do you look at in your life and say, it just can't change? That cannot change. <laughs> right in that serious point. <laughs> a little child was laughing. It was wonderful. But who is the impossible one? It Maybe it's a situation in your life. Is God, there might not be an open door. There might not be an open door, but there might be an open door. Look, look, because if that's going to change, it's only going to be changed through God's power, not yours, not through your strength and not through your weakness, but God working through you in that impossible situation. <laughs> Sorry. You get the giggles sometimes. All right. Our elders are going to come up if you need. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Woo. I got to meet that child. <laughs> come forward as we Stay. <laughs>